When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for yet another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Now, they say that nature abhors a vacuum. Nature also seems to like to accumulate stuff. Nature's kind of a hoarder, I guess you might say, right? Natural water courses are really good at accumulating terrestrial materials, and they create these really inviting habitats for fishes. They serve not only as physical locales for fishes to hide and forage amongst, they provide a huge habitat for a variety of other organisms which support the fishes. And of course, these are compelling aquatic features for us as fish geeks to replicate in our aquariums, aren't they? They are, and perhaps they provide the basic role model for the botanical style aquarium. These aggregations of materials occur all the time in nature in natural water courses, and they're caused by a variety of things, typically weather events, which drive materials off of the trees overhead or from the surrounding terrestrial habitats into the water. Currents caused by rising water levels move the materials along until they might be caught up among various benthic features like fallen branches, trees, rocks, etc. that are submerged in the, uh, in the stream. Yeah, as you'd imagine, a stream and river bottom composition is completely affected by things like weather, current geology, the surrounding terrestrial habitat, and like a ton of other factors, all of which could make planning your next aquarium even more interesting if you take them into consideration. Now, according to one study I read, you know, I like to read these kind of studies, um, eventually most of the organic debris that falls into water is deposited on the stream bottom or drifts downstream until it becomes trapped by a variety of natural obstacles, be they, um, you know, projecting roots, again, trees, that kind of stuff. Now, if we focus on streams, it's important to note that the volume of water entering the stream and the depth of the channels it carves out help in part to determine the amount and size of the materials which accumulate, as well as the sediment particles that can be carried along and ultimately comprise the substrate of the habitat. So there's a lot going on as far as accumulations. And of course, the composition of bottom materials and the depth of the channel are always changing in response to the flow in a given stream, affecting the composition and even the ecology of the stream in many different ways. Now, leaf litter beds, which you know we love around here, uh, some leaf litter beds form in what stream ecologists call meanders. And these are little stream structures that form when moving water in a stream erodes the outer banks and widens its valley, which is sort of the inner part of the river. And the inner part of the river has less energy and deposits silt, or in our instant, you know, in our case, leaves and twigs and all that kind of stuff. So there's a whole amazing science, pretty fascinating, to river and stream structure and with so many implications for understanding how these structures and mechanisms affect fish population, occurrence, behavior, and ecology, it's well worth studying for aquarium interpretation. Now, did you get that part where I mentioned that the lower energy parts of the water courses tend to accumulate leaves and sediments and all that stuff? Yeah, I'll bet you did. So permanent streams will often have different volume and material composition 
than more intermittent streams, which are the result of inundation caused by rain and weather events. That kind of makes sense. These so-called ephemeral streams typically occur only immediately after rain events, which means they usually don't have fish in them unless they're washed into them from more permanent water courses. The, that type of stream is typically more affected by leaves, botanical debris, branches, and other materials. In the Amazon region, which, yes, you knew I was going to go back there, right? It sort of works both ways, with the rivers influencing the surrounding land, and then the land giving some of the materials back to the rivers. The extensive lowland areas bordering the river and its tributaries, known as varzeas, does that sound familiar? Also, floodplains, I guess, would be another term for it. They're subject to annual flooding, which helps foster enrichment of the aquatic environment. We've talked about those extensively, haven't we? Again, it's another example of land and water working together, which is a really a remarkable relationship. They provide an amazing resource you know, for the adventurous and interested hobbyists to explore in greater detail. There's a lot to learn from this stuff. Now, the important and probably overriding thing uh, theme of many of the habitats which we try to replicate in the aquarium are is really uh, that they accumulate quantities of terrestrial materials. That's a fundamental thing with what we do, isn't it? These materials don't just impact the physical characteristics of these habitats, i.e. the shape, the water movement, what falls and accumulates. They influence the ecology as well. As we know by now, terrestrial materials, when submerged in water, leach soluble compounds into the water, impacting the chemistry, the physical environment. They also tend to recruit fungal growths and biofilms, which in turn serve to not only decompose the terrestrial materials somewhat, they tend to attract fishes to graze upon them. Terrestrial materials form the basis of a rich, surprisingly complex aquatic ecology. A food web arises. So what exactly is a food web? We talk about those a lot around here, don't we? Now, a food web is defined by aquatic ecologists as a series of what they call trophic connections, i.e. feeding and nutritional resources in a given habitat. Uh, Trophic connections among various species in an aquatic community. Now, all food chains and webs have at least two or three of these trophic levels. Generally, there's a maximum of four trophic levels. Many consumers feed at more than one trophic level. It gets a little confusing. So a trophic level, in our case, would go something like this. Leaf litter, bacteria, fungal growth, crustaceans. In the wild aquatic habitats that we obsess over, food webs are vital to the organisms which live in them. They're an absolute model for ecological interdependencies and processes which encompasses the relationship between the terrestrial and the aquatic environments. Interestingly, in streams, the primary producers of the food webs that attract our fishes are, because what, algae and detritus. Algae and diatoms, excuse me, I don't know why I said detritus. It's on my mind, we'll talk about that later. But algae and diatoms, which are typically found on rocks and wood or wherever light and nutrients you know, create optimum conditions for their growth. Organic material that enters streams via leaf fall is acted upon by lots of different small organisms which help break the stuff down. And it's probably no surprise then that bacteria, especially in biofilms, and fungi are the initial consumers of the organic materials that accumulate on the bottom of streams and other bodies of water. Like the stuff many of us loathe. These, in turn, are extremely vital to fishes as food sources. Hence, one of the things I love so much about utilizing a leaf litter bed as a big part of your substrate composition in the aquarium, right? We've talked about that many times. We're able to establish a rudimentary food web in our aquariums. It's actually pretty easy if we don't try to clean the crap out of our tanks and remove 
every bit of organic matter which we deem offensive to our aesthetic sensibilities. Remember, all of the material which we freak out about is someone's next meal, isn't it? It's consumed. The various organisms which arise when we allow leaves and branches and seed pods and other materials to accumulate and decompose in our tanks help see to that. Yes, aquariums are different than the wild aquatic habitats, I get this, but they have many characteristics which are analogous to them. And sure, we don't typically maintain completely open systems, but I wonder just how much of the ecology of these really fascinating habitats that we can replicate in our tanks, and then what potential benefits we might realize for our fishes. I'm willing to bet that it's a lot more than we think. However, we have to start somewhere, right? Now, it all starts with adding and accumulating terrestrial materials in our tanks and allowing an ecology to grow up around them. It's that simple and that complex, right? It falls on us, the hobbyists, not to go crazy and to try to intervene too much. We need to exercise restraint to let the natural processes which power our aquariums arise, assemble, and thrive. Like, hands off. That's my continuing challenge to our community. Yeah, we have to let stuff go a bit. It's really hard for a lot of hobbyists to do this. I get it. We're essentially trained from the beginnings of our aquarium experience to scrub, polish, and siphon out everything which doesn't meet some definition of acceptable. We've been told that algae growth or fungal growth on our wood or our substrate are bad and they must be removed. We've been encouraged to siphon out any decomposing materials. And the stuff like detritus is the source of you know, untold disaster if we let it accumulate in our tanks. That's what we've been told. It's hard for many people to make this mental shift. I know I've been trying to convince people to take this path for the better part of the last decade, and it's finally catching on. Skeptics and haters abound more than ever now as these ideas have gained some traction in the aquarium hobby. You're starting to see more and more people play with them and present their ideas. It's 100% counterintuitive to everything we've been indoctrinated to believe. And worse, we're asking you to have faith that Stuff will work out in your tank when all you see is biofilm and fungal growth, turbid water, decomposing leaves, and perhaps even algae. Stuff that the so-called nature aquarium crowd would absolutely shit their pants over. Well, this is nature, boys and girls. This is planet Earth. And yeah, you're actually not 100% in control. It's not the sanitized, organized, homogenized, highly stylized nature of your fantasies. It's nature that's perfectly imperfect, filled with non-ratioed, you know, seemingly disorganized aggregations of materials and life forms covering everything. You have to seed some of the work in your tank to nature. You'll go through some things. (laughs) Some of the stuff you're going to see will be ugly to you. Or will it be? Will you perhaps study some of the wild aquatic habitats of the world where our fishes come from, see what makes them function the way they do, and maybe draw a parallel between what you're seeing in your tank and what you're seeing in nature? Will you do that? Will you hang on? Will you wait out what appears to be an endless explosion of gooey, stringy stuff coming out of your leaves, your wood, and your botanicals, and allow your tank to achieve its own form of equilibrium? Or will you reach for the siphon hose and pull it all out, disrupting some of nature's most elegant, valuable, and efficient processes in order to reset to achieve some sort of instant gratification that you were told, you know, that a spotless, sterile-looking tank would provide. Yeah, essentially resetting the whole thing. That's what happens when you, when you do that. Doing things the way we've done them in the hobby for decades because they give you the predictable results in a short amount of time. Look, I get it, but what's the fun in that? 
Maybe, maybe you'll see the real beauty of unedited nature in your very own tank and the amazing way nature works it out if you let her. That's the adventure, the challenge of the Botanical Style Aquarium, a methodology filled with inexact, unconventional, yet well-known natural processes, a methodology which asks you to make some leaps of faith, some educated guesses, and to play some hunches, an evolving, not entirely predictable path to a dynamic, truly remarkable aquarium. You can do this. You might fail, but you'll likely succeed, especially if you put your faith in nature. Be strong, be patient, be experimental. Hang on through the weird, uncomfortable, uncertain, unknown stuff. It's totally worth it, trust me. Stay bold, stay open-minded, stay curious, stay the course, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Ten and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.